Well, this morning, we're going to continue our Problem of Pain series as we're looking through uh, some of the Psalms. We're going to be in Psalm 77 this morning, if you want to go ahead and start turning there. The past three sermons in our series, and we'll finish it up next week, have seen us examining the laments and despair of some of the authors of Psalms. And just to be uh, completely candid from the top, uh, as someone who routinely struggles with depression and feeling like I'm not enough and wondering why God uses and loves me and has had more sleepless nights than I can count, trying to get the voice in my head to stop telling me lies about God uh, and lies about my family and friends and, and even my church family, this psalm specifically, and really all of the psalms is a place I go to during times of depression, uh, it speaks to me in a very personal way and I hope is helpful to many of you today. There's a lot of things I'm looking forward to in heaven, but one truth that I'm most ready to experience is to no longer have the disconnect that I too often feel between what I know is true in my mind and what I feel is true in my heart. In heaven, there will be no more disconnect. Our hearts will have continual, growing fullness of joy as we experience a perfect relationship with our Heavenly Father. And this book reminds us of the struggle we have with the dis disconnect between what we know is true in our minds and what we feel is true in our hearts. Too often when I'm struggling with trials or depression, uh, my head knows what is true and right, but my emotions are having a hard time syncing up with that. And what is true in my head doesn't feel true in my heart. And the Psalms deal with those emotions. Uh, Psalm 77 is one of the clearest Psalms that addresses a situation that either you are currently in, that you have been in, or most likely will be in at some point in your Christian walk. You'll most likely go through the low, dark valley of the shadow of death. We, we get that language from Psalm 23, wondering where God is, feeling like he maybe has even turned his back on you. What do you do in those moments? And, and that is what Psalm 77 is all about. The 150 Psalms are broken up into five different books, each with its own theme. Psalm 77 is in the third book of Psalms, and the theme of this book uh, is really dark and bleak if you read through them all. After finishing on a high note uh, in book two, the darkness has set in. It feels like the light has disappeared, and, and that is our lives. We will experience times of great joy and goodness, and we will experience times of darkness and doubts. And Psalm 77 goes back and forth, expressing heaviness and doubts, and, and then ends with a reminder of the truth of who God is. This psalm is a lament. It's unclear what specific situation the author of this psalm was experiencing. So this is often referred to as a communal uh, lament or a general lament because it could apply in many different situations for different people. It's a psalm of Asaph, as you might see at the, the top of your heading in your Bible there. Asaph was one of three musicians, along with Jeduthun, great name for a boy in the future, uh, who's also mentioned at the beginning of this, and Heman uh, were the other two that David had, been, had put in charge uh, of writing songs to be sung by God's people, some of which have now been added into the, the book of Psalms as scripture. Uh, Asaph wrote a number of psalms, but rather than always being full of praise, they often are marked by the pain that he is struggling with and going through. What we'll see here is that he's a guy going through a time of great despair and suffering. 
yet he manages to find relief in God even when he doesn't get a response from God. So this song is given to us to illuminate our path when we are faced with our days of trouble. It is a light to our path that we can cling to truth when our emotions uh, are pulling us to doubt the steadfast love of God. We say and believe that, that God is great, God is good, but what about when life is not? Does God really feel good all the time in my life? Does God really seem great and good and loving and kind all the time in my life? You've maybe had periods in your life where you've wondered, if he's so great, then why is he letting this anxiety take over my life? If he's so good, then why did I just spend Christmas and New Year's with one less loved one at the table? God doesn't feel great in the middle of this divorce. God doesn't feel great when the teenager I've spent 16 years praying and pouring into has decided to walk away from the church and is making poor choices. And then you come to church and, and expect to be comforted. And, and we're here talking about how God is doing big things throughout the world and in our lives and in our church, when you'd be happy for God to just do something, anything would be fine. Everyone has had or will have at some point the experience of where is God? Is he really good? Why won't he do something about what I'm going through? Why is he silent in the midst of my situation? And so here's the question today that this psalm will answer. How do I have confidence in God when he seems silent in my situation? And the word confidence here literally means with faith. How do I live with faith in God when, I'm experiencing, when what I'm experiencing in my life doesn't match up with what I believe about my God? What do you do when... Uh, what you see with your eyes is different from what you believe in your heart. How do I have confidence in God when he seems silent? So uh, this morning, I want to look at Asaph's strategy for fighting discouragement and doubt and darkness. And I want us to see how Asaph has confidence, faith, even when God seems silent. So we're going to read all of Psalm 77, 1 through 20, and then we'll, we'll break it down as we go. Asaph writes, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago, I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. 
Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Well, I don't know about you, but it's easy for me to see myself in this psalm, especially those first nine verses, which isn't surprising considering the simplest description of what the psalms are, is that they were uh, the inspired prayer and praise book of Israel. The psalms are, are revelations of truth, but not abstractly, but in terms of human experience. So without even knowing it, that's why so many of us love reading the psalms, because when you read the psalms, you see yourself, you see your situation. The experience of the psalmist is your experience, and I don't think that's an accident. God put the psalms in the Bible not only to call us to great heights of praise and worship, but also to comfort us in very dark seasons of discouragement and doubt. Asaph is a guy who had been to the highest of mountaintops and to the lowest of valleys. We may enjoy and experience and worship God on the mountaintops, but we learn to trust and obey and know him in the valley. On the mountaintop, we love to praise him for the what, but in the valley, we get to praise him for who he is. In Psalm 77, Asaph is in the valley, and what he sees is an absent God who seems unconcerned and silent in the midst of Asaph's suffering. Yet somehow, by the end of this psalm, even when nothing in his circumstances had changed, he managed to have confidence in God. So I, I believe this psalm shows us two ways to have confidence in God when he seems silent. And the first way in our first nine verses is be honest with God through prayer. Noted, notice I didn't say just pray, but instead to pray honestly. Shout out to Mike Dahl if we're going to be honest, and that's the kind of people we want to be. But he's on to something with honesty. Verse 1, it says, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. And I think there's just simple two key words in the middle of verse 1 there, to God. And this is so important because in the day of trouble, Asaph didn't go and complain to his friends or ignore it by, by sinking himself into his work or distracting himself with worldly pleasures. He prayed to God. Being afflicted, Asaph prayed. Yes, he was full of complaints, loud complaints, he says in verse 1, but he directed them to God, not to people, and he turned them all into prayers. GBC, days of trouble must be days of prayer, especially when God seems to have gone silent to you. In those times, we must diligently seek him until we find him. I know I've struggled with and, and incorrectly thought uh, that if I'm questioning or complaining when I talk to God that my faith must be weak or there's something wrong with me. I don't know why uh, I can read the many passages of Scripture of people crying out to God and wondering uh, what it is that is happening to them and, and think, man, that's great for them, and then not do it myself, but I do. And I'm guessing many of you have been there too. Our God does want to hear our honest complaints and questions. Just like if, if you're in this room, if you're married, you don't want your spouse to hold things back of what's troubling them. Or if you're a parent, all you want is more than a fine when you ask your kids how school was that day, right? Or if you have friends you care about, you hope they can trust you 
with their hurts and problems. Well, if we desire for others to be open with us, and we don't judge those who are open with us, how much more so will our good Heavenly Father love and listen to us when we are in troubled times? When our lives are dark, God wants us to be honest with Him through prayer. He also wants us to be honest and lament with one another. We are called to bear another's burdens and weep with those who are weeping, but it starts with going to God first. Even Asaph here, he doesn't just pray this to God. He actually wrote it down to share with others. We're reading this 3,000 years later, right? But we should go to God first and continually. If you're going through something, you can't drink it away, laugh it away, sleep it away, buy it away, distract it away, or ignore it away. The path to peace is to give it away to God in prayer. Days of trouble must be days of honest prayer. Let's, let's keep breaking this down. Verses 2 through 3. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Asaph started in the right place, crying out to God, and he does believe that he will answer. But here we are seeing that Asaph is up all night, and he doesn't feel like he's getting an answer, or at least the answer that he hopes for. It gets to the point in verse 3 that even thinking about God right now is causing him to moan of like, oh, I, I don't even want to think about you right now, God. What this means is, is Asaph, he doesn't understand what God is doing in this experience, and he doesn't see an end in sight. But even though his soul could not be comforted, he's at least still going to God. He's not giving up on the situation, even as he struggles to understand what it is that's happening. Verses 4 through 6, he says, You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Asaph, the writer of songs to God, the great writer of songs to God, he can't even come up with words to say by the end of verse 4. Only moans come out of him now. Unfortunately for Asaph, but thankfully for us, we now have the Holy Spirit who can articulate our prayers when the words aren't there. Paul writes in Romans 8, 26 and 27, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings, close to moanings, too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The words may not be there in our distress, but we must still cry out to God, and the Holy Spirit is our helper to communicate to God. He then tries, Asaph then tries to think back to the good old days, some time in the distant past in his life when everything seemed to be going well, something he can draw on to help his current circumstance. Now remember, Asaph is a worship leader. He's the worship leader for Israel, so he's pretty good at knowing how to help turn spirits back to God and feel God's joy and presence. So he says, let me remember my song in the night. Usually he's able to just sing his pain away with some song that he's penned or someone else has, but now it's not working. Have you ever had this experience? As a believer, 
what do you do when what you used to do that would draw you close to God doesn't work anymore? You used to spend time in your Bible and feel like God was talking directly to you. Now it just feels like part of a checklist of a, a thing that good Christians are supposed to do. You used to be able to talk about the things of the Lord for hours on end. Now he's not quite as exciting as sports and politics and Instagram. That worship song you used to love and would draw you so near to Christ has become just another swipe on the playlist. I've heard this one enough. Some of you have been believers so long, you've forgotten what it's like to come to church and have a genuine encounter with the God of the universe. And no matter what you try to do, nothing seems to change. That's what Asaph is going through here, and it just keeps getting worse. He moves from wondering about his circumstances to in the next three verses, questioning God's character. Look how brutally candid and honest this prayer gets. It almost gets uncomfortable that he's writing this down for us. Verses 7 through 9. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? You see what Asaph is doing here. The, the psalmist has turned to examine his own heart, to try and search out his own heart, and he is allowing himself to ask out loud the hard questions that feel like truths in his soul. And this is where I start to really identify with Asaph and where my desire for what I know to be true in my head to also be true in my heart at all times as well. The psalmist's complete honesty here compels him to lay these questions before the Lord because he's asking these questions in his heart and his circumstances seem like they are never going to be different. He's asking whether God has rejected him. He's asking whether God will ever show favor to him again. He's asking whether God's loving kindness has failed. He's asking whether God's promise has failed. He's asking whether God has forgotten how to be gracious to him. He is asking whether God in his anger towards him has withdrawn his compassion. And he is asking whether God, who is unchanging, has changed. That's where he is. And so he lays those questions out to God. We can read these questions and know the answers right away to them if we know our Bible. Of course, God continues to show favor and his loving kindness never ends and his promises are always true and he remembers his graciousness and he is slow to anger and full of compassion and is the unchangeable God. But knowing that up here and connecting that down here is often the most difficult part of our faith. And, and that is the part that is faith. Because for many of us, we almost want to believe that God has given up on us because we've given up on ourselves. We feel like we deserve to be abandoned and not loved and, and to live in our misery. And guess what? You're right. You do deserve that. So do I. We all deserve that. But God as we like to say around here. But God says something different. And knowing, remembering, meditating, pondering, believing, and living the truth of the love and grace and mercy of God is what gets us through those troubled times that come our way. Looking back at my life, uh, I can pretty confidently say that I think I've been dealing with depression since I was 10. Uh, I didn't identify and get medication and, and counsel from family and friends until I was 19, though. 
So that was 20 years ago that I finally realized what was going on in my head and my heart. And guess what? As many times as I have cried out to God and asked him to take this away, he hasn't. I don't think he will. I think it's my thorn in the flesh, as Paul would say in 2 Corinthians. That's okay, though. I, I have bad, bad days and even weeks sometime. Last week, I had, I had a really bad week last week. I have a voice in my head that is my worst enemy, telling me how terrible I am, how worthless I am, how I'm not doing good enough, how I let everyone around me down. And that voice has made me question if God can really love me and use me in the moments that I'm hurting most. But then I do what Asaph does in verses 10 through 20. I appeal to the Lord and remember what he's done and who he is. And when I saturate myself with his truth, instead of the lies from that voice, I'm able to still be a husband and a father and a friend and a minister of the gospel. And what I want you all to understand more than anything from this psalm is the importance of remembering God through his word. And that's going to close out the last section here. Let's read verses 10 through 20. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your works and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. For Asaph, something happened between verses 7 through 9 when he was so low and discouraged and verses 13 and 20 when he is now uh, full of worship and confidence. So what happened in verses 10 through 12 when worship was swallowed up by his doubt? Well, Asaph began remembering, pondering, meditating. You see those words a lot here on the deeds, wonders, and work of God, which is what we can and should do today. And how do we do this best? By the word of God. We remember and we ponder and we meditate one way, and that's by the written word of God. We fellowship with Christ through the written word of God. We pray and talk to him on the basis of what we know from the written word of God. We hear him speak to us through the written word. He shows us his character and will through the written word. We find comfort in his promises through the written word. GBC, we remember the goodness of God towards us in Jesus Christ through the word of God, which means there is a connection between the amount of confidence you have in God and the amount of scripture that's in your heart. Not your head, but in your heart. When life or the enemy or your emotions or others attack you or the voice in your head lies to you, the word is your best weapon. It's called the sword of the spirit for a reason. God may seem silent at times, but friends, he is not. He has spoken 
through his word. And as Martin Luther says, when scripture speaks, God speaks. Every time you open this book up, God is speaking to you. It's important to notice Asaph does find relief, but his circumstances haven't changed. This isn't a change your perspective and all your problems will go away uh, type of faith. That's not how life works and that's not how God works. His problems are still there, but a change in perspective ends up leading him to great heights of praise. For all you English majors who are paying attention to the pronouns in this psalm, you can see in the first half, when things are not going well, there are 18 occurrences of the first person singular pronoun, I or me, and only six references to God. However, in verses 13 through 20, there are 21 mentions of God and zero personal references at all. That's what's called a change in perspective. Here's what the psalmist knew. You don't always choose what crosses your mind, but you can choose what stays there. This is Asaph choosing to meditate on the deeds of a sovereign, loving God, rather than looking at his situation through the lens of his feelings. This is him choosing to call to mind God's deeds, wonders, and works of the past, which then gives him confidence of God in the present and in the future. Regardless of how you feel, God isn't, never has been, and never will be silent in your pain. Because where Scripture speaks, God speaks. What this means is that when what you see doesn't match up with what God has said in His Word, you should go with what He said in His Word. You may feel like God is going to spurn you forever, yet He said in Psalm 94, 14, For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. Go with what he said. You may feel like God will never again be favorable to you. Yet he said in Psalm 94, or excuse me, 8411, For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing he does, no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Go with what he said. You may feel like God's steadfast love has forever ceased, yet he said in Psalm 103.17, but the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. Go with what he said. You may feel like his promises are at an end for all time, yet he said in Galatians 3.29, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's heirs according to promise. Go with what he said. You may feel like God has forgotten to be gracious, yet he said in Exodus 34, 6, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Go with what he said. You may feel like God has shut up his compassion towards you, yet he said in Lamentations 3, 22 and 23, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Go with what he said. When what you see doesn't match up with what God said in his word, always go with what he said. Every second of every day, your walk and relationship with Christ, the way you experience and live with Jesus, will be shaped, sustained, and carried by the word of God. If you are not in the word, then you will be weak, fragile, easily swayed, and easily deceived. The word of God is what enables the people of God to live their lives to the glory of God because they become supremely confident in the character of God. The single most effective way of boosting your confidence in God and in his character is by spending time in the word because you can only trust God as much as you know him. 
and how much you know him is directly tied to how well you know his word. The good doctor, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his incredible book, Spiritual Depression, writes, Whatever your circumstances at this moment, bring all you know to be true of your relationship to God to bear upon it. I do not suggest that you will be able to understand everything that is happening. You may not have a full explanation of it, but you will know for certain that God is not unconcerned. That is impossible. The one who has done the greatest thing of all for you must be concerned about you in everything. And though the clouds are thick and you cannot see his face, you know he is there. Now hold on to that. You say that you do not see his smile. I agree that these earthborn clouds prevent my seeing him, but he is there. Say to yourself, I believe this. I am resting on this. I am certain of this. And though I do not understand what is happening to me, I am holding on to this. By verses 13 and 15, Asaph is lost in God. Now he is thinking about the character of God. And the first thing he says is, your way, O God, is holy. In other words, God, the way that you do things is the right way. I accept that. I see how you dealt with me in the past. I see how you've dealt with your people in the past. The way that you deal with us is the right way. And then he meditates on God's character. God is what? First, holy. God is what? He is great. What God is great like our God? No one. God does what? He is a wonder worker. He does the miraculous. You are the God who works wonders. God does what? He specifically revealed himself to his people. You have made known your might among the peoples. And what does God do? God redeems his people. You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. And then finally, he turns to the great scene of Old Testament redemption. You recognize the language of verses 16 through 20. They are drawn, for the most part, right out of the crossing of the Red Sea. I was joking with Eric Wood earlier this week that I can't escape the book of Exodus lately. But that's because if you know God's word, you know that this moment is a microcosm of the overall theme of redemption in Scripture and ultimately pointing to the true redemption that comes through Jesus Christ. Let's read verses 16 through 20 one last time. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. What's Asaph doing? He's recalling the greatest scene of redemption in the Old Testament. He's recalling God leading Israel through the Red Sea, leading them out of Egypt, away from their enemies, and safely across the Red Sea. Even in verse 19, when the Israelites don't understand what is happening, and they even question Moses, if you look back in Exodus, if they should have left Egypt in the first place, what do we see? God has a path. God was there. God was in control, even if his footprints weren't seen. That's same for you and me and our troubles. We may not see the why and the how now, but God is there and is in control, and his plan is ultimately for redemption. Asaph realize, realizes that if God can shepherd his people through the Red Sea, then God can be my shepherd 
even in the valley of the shadow of death. But we in this room today, we actually have something far, far greater to look back on that brings us comfort. In fact, we don't look back to it, we look up to it. And that's the cross. Asaph was in the old covenant and he looked back to the redemption of Egypt. The new covenant believer, us, run to the cross and we find there an even deeper comfort because we find when we look to the cross that our cure to our sin and our grief is in what the Lord Jesus Christ took on. Derek Thomas, a pastor and seminary professor, points out how Aaron's benediction in number six, he's receiving a benediction as the the priest of the people, it gets reversed on Jesus Christ. Aaron's benediction in number six, 24 through 26 says, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. It's a great blessing, great benediction. And in our place, the Lord Jesus Christ endures from his father the exact reverse of Aaron's benediction when he is hanging on the cross as a substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. The Lord curse you and abandon you. The Lord turn his face from you and remove all his grace and favor from you. The Lord shun you with his presence and take from you all peace. When we realize that, we suddenly realize that we ourselves have never, ever been where this psalmist describes. In fact, Asaph has never been where he describes. The only one who has been there is Jesus. This psalm describing a lack of comfort in bitter darkness only measures up to Jesus' experience because he's been there for us. So now we can realize and remember and ponder and meditate that the very way of our redemption gives us comfort in our deepest hours of depression, in the times when our souls are downcast. We are taught by the heart of Asaph in moments of hopelessness to remember the days of old and assure ourselves that the God of Israel lives, the God of the Passover night, the God of the Red Sea, the God of the pillar cloud, the God of Sinai, the God of the wilderness, the God of the Jordan, the God whose kingdom will never end, the God during the captivity in Babylon, the God who sent, or the God who humbled himself and took on flesh, the God who died on Calvary, the God who sent his Holy Spirit to transform and change us, the God who will return as king. That God is with us and speaking to us even when we think or we feel that he is silent. Our Savior, who identifies with us in our weakness as he sweats drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before his crucifixion because he was anxious and knew what was coming. Our innocent Redeemer, who had the Father turn his back on him so that the Father could embrace us and forgive us of our sin. Our King, who brings the message of hope and reconciliation for all who trust and believe in his name. He has provided us with his living and active word. So every time we open up this book, we can hear from the heart of God. We can be comforted. We can know, we can trust, we can have confidence that the God who delivered Israel from Egypt can deliver us from our sins and whatever we may be going through right now. Remember his mighty works. Remember his promises and know that you will never be forsaken or abandoned in your despair. Let's pray together. 
Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have not forsaken or abandoned us. I thank you that your promises hold true. All your promises are yes and amen. And God, when the, the darkness comes into our life, when those, those times of depression or doubt or downcast soul or uh, the pressures of the world, attacks from the enemy, whatever it is, seems to be pulling us away from you, I pray you would help us to stop, to remember, to ponder, to meditate on who you are, on the character of who you are, to remember your past victory and mighty works so it will give us hope in this present moment and for what comes in the future. God, I thank you for sending your son to experience what we never could be, of actually having your back turned away uh, on them. I, I thank you that Jesus was willing to take the punishment that we deserve, that he was willing to, uh, to, to put himself in such a place of despair and darkness, of, 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 of feeling and, and becoming the vessel for sin when he was purely innocent and had never sinned himself. I thank you that uh, that moment of extreme tragedy can help us have hope in our moments of tragedy. God, I pray that we would be a people who uh, want to be in your word, that it's not a checklist of what it is to be a good Christian or to keep up with our yearly Bible plan, but that we have a true understanding that this is your living, active word, and that when we seek you, you are right there to answer us and speak to us. Help us to be a people who don't just know you in our heads, but we know you in our hearts, that we don't forget who you are, even in the times when it feels like you are silent. God, I thank you that you are always there even when we can't see your footsteps. I pray for everyone in this room that we would all come to a point of living our lives in such a way that we are, uh, are aware of you in our lives and are, are bringing forth the message of hope to others around us who are still lost in their despair. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.